0: The following episode contains spoilers for the 2018 film Avengers Infinity War, and pretty much the whole rest of the MCU. In time, you will know what it's like to lose, to feel so desperately that you're right, yet to fail all the same. As promised, welcome to the LM2 Talks spoiler cast for Avengers Infinity War. In this spoiler cast, I'm going to talk about a few things that I loved from the film, a few things that I didn't love so much, some things that I wanted to see a little bit more of, and a few odds and ends here, things that I thought were cool to see. I'm also going to, throughout the episode, be addressing some of the questions that people either had or, or wanted me to uh, talk about uh, as I reflected on the film, so I'll be giving some some slight shout-outs to some of the folks that sent this stuff over, and uh I hope you enjoy and hopefully you've seen it. Again, I gave a spoiler warning up top. I want to reiterate that, you know, there will definitely be spoilers for the film in this episode. If you have not seen it yet, do not listen. Pause it, go see the movie and then listen to it when you get back. With that out of the way, I'm just going to dive into some of the things that I loved about this film. How dope is it that the heroes lost? I mean, with just a snap of his fingers, Thanos wiped out half of the universe's population. I mean, that's wild. I could have never imagined Marvel doing this. I think that more than anything is is what I really loved about Infinity War. Yeah, this is, this is the culmination of so many things, but realistically, I never saw that coming. Yes, you know, there was a comic storyline where this happened, and I might have predicted that this was going to happen, but I didn't actually expect them to do this. Given the popularity of these characters and the films and, and yes, yes, most of them are going to be back. They're going to find a way to undo it. And that, you know, part of the problem with all of these movies is stakes because you never know what character deaths are actually going to keep. But I never expected to see it on screen and to then have to wait. An entire year to see what they do next. You know, yes, yes, we'll have other movies between now and then, but the actual continuation of this Infinity War story doesn't come until later. And Thanos just gets to sit pretty and watch the sunrise. Let me talk about him. In the entirety of the MCU, Thanos is only really the second time that I thought an antagonist was great, and it's kind of sad that the other example is also from 2018. It's Eric Killmonger from Black Panther. I imagine you can probably guess why I think he's such a compelling character and why he's so good. Like with Killmonger, time was actually taken out to establish why Thanos is who he is, why he's motivated the way he is, and his actual machinations are, are delved into. You get this real sense for his twisted logic. It makes sense to him and the way that he explains it. You're disgusted as an audience member because of the scale of carnage that results from his desires, but at the same time, you you clearly understand the the line of thinking that he's going through to achieve that. Essentially, Thanos has been going from world to world killing half the populations of these planets in order to achieve what he sees as balance. He wants to, in a way, create this level playing field where folks aren't fighting over the natural resources of an area, finite natural resources. In a way, he sees the overabundance of of life as something that one causes people to fight automatically, but also ensures destructions of different populations because there's not enough to go around for everybody. And so in his own way, he feels like, he's delivering a sort of mercy and creating a sense of utopia for these different worlds that he conquers. And that's just downright terrifying. You know, he, he uses what he calls a simple calculus. He uses this form of logic to kind of tear his path of destruction across the universe. Yet he feels like he's benevolent. He feels like he's doing this good service to everybody. And I think there was something really terrifying and chilling about that, that really made me intrigued by the character and and really want to kind of come along with his journey and, you know, as, as morbid as it was, yeah, you wanted to see what the end result was. You wanted to see how that could play out on a universal, on a cosmic scale. Beyond just the character's motivations though, Josh Brolin brings this amazing kind of gravitas to a purple CGI character um, who Peter Quill, Star-Lord, so eloquently calls Grimace at, at some point. The motion capture on his facial expressions was just perfect. You know, whether it was a small subtle smirk, whether it's the narrowing of his eyes, the way that he looked at different characters, the way that he interacted, the delivery of certain lines, it all just felt so well performed and, you know, again, it was menacing, it was emotional, it was, it was just, there was, it was so engrossing. I think more than any other character, you were kind of pulled into Thanos' emotional gravity. And not to say that this was always perfectly portrayed on screen overall and, and no fault of Josh Brolin in, in this regard. But, you know, I think one of the places that I do felt feel like it, it somewhat fell apart was with, uh, you know, his relationship with Gamora, but I'll, I'll touch on that a little bit later. And it's, it's not so much the, you know, his feelings for Gamora. Cause I think, I think those are, I think that's the one thing that I would have really liked to see more of from his character. But again, it's, it's really hard to do when you have so much that you're trying to fit into this movie and the fact that they haven't really done too much setup for him before uh, besides in, you know, Guardians 1 and 2 where Gamora and Nebula have a few conversations about what it was like growing up with him, working for him, you know, etc. You know, there, so there was a little bit that that I felt was missing there, but that wasn't necessarily the ca- Thanos's issue. That was more of a an overall storytelling and in, probably an issue with Gamora's writing more. Uh, but like I said, I'll get into that a little bit later. And outside of the performance Performance. one of the things that was really cool about Thanos was really how punishing he was in fights. Um, you know, it's not every day that you really get to see your heroes full-on lose. Like, it wasn't even close. Um, you know, sure, there was that one section where it looked like Iron Man and Spider-Man and Doctor Strange and a couple of the Guardians of the Galaxy had the upper hand and, and were going to defeat him, but, you know, it was always kind of a foregone conclusion He had planned everything out so perfectly that he kind of knew the right buttons to push in order to kind of keep himself from losing. And I think that's something that, you know, realistically I didn't necessarily pick up on the first time I watched it and, and I needed the second time to really see that. I'll go into that a little bit later because it's it's partially a good thing that I like, but it also stems from kind of a bad thing that I want to touch on a little bit later. I think this is also a good spot to touch on one of the questions that was sent to me or one of the inquiries that was sent to me. So one of my former students, Ezra, was wondering how I felt about Thanos' plan kind of overall and why he, almost why he didn't choose to use the Infinity Gauntlet to, rather than wipe out half of the population of the universe, um, why he didn't instead make it so so that resources, you know, were infinite. And this is, this is going to sound really strange and it's it's kind of a weird thing to think about, but I, I, I was thinking about it when I watched the film this time around. And what I realize it is, um, I think it stems from his view of the universe. For Thanos, he sees it as if there are unlimited resources, folks are going to fight for those and continue to fight for those. And, you know, populations will surge out of control. And all of the issues that he sees, they wouldn't necessarily go away because, you know, there would still be a core group that decides, hey, hey, we're going to control all of this stuff and we're going to subjugate others. His view is make all of these communities experience loss on such a major scale that they have no choice, in a sense, but to band together to make their societies a kind of better, more just place where they are working together to create that sense of utopia. And I think that's one of the really strange but really interesting viewpoints of the character and a really interesting philosophy that I'd really love to talk to someone in person about and kind of, you know, get some other ideas on that. But, you know, largely that's how I read it, you know, based on the way that he kind of described his backstory uh, talking about Titan and the fact that you know, they they were headed towards extinction and he, he gave them a plan for how they could survive and it involved you know, killing half the population at random. You know, obviously no one wants to take that deal, but if it would stop all of these different issues You know, and you would, and you'd be forced to kind of reflect on the fact that you have lost half your population. Would it mean that people would work together as opposed to working against each other? And so, it's kind of like a terrible, sobering thought for a comic book movie. But you know, I do think it it is a really interesting point. It was a really interesting question that is is kind of worth thinking about in the context of the character because he sees himself as merciful. He sees himself as being kind of greater good who's delivering salvation to all of these people. But his salvation comes in the form of death and, you know, making people restructure their communities because of that death rather than, you know, bestowing more resources, more food, more water, more of whatever these peoples need. Um, You know, and and so there's kind of that emotional tyranny. So, you know, in 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 a sense, he is trying to prescribe, you know. know his view of all right you know death being the great equalizer I'm going to be more likely to work with somebody who's unlike me if we both share that experience of loss and you know that it's it's scary but you know again it's like there is a there's a thread of logic that you can follow with that. So besides Thanos, one of the other things that I really loved about this film was Thor. I thought they did a really good job of extending his story after Thor Ragnarok. Realistically, his first two outings, I wasn't necessarily the biggest fan of Thor 1 and Thor 2 is kind of like, Thor 2 I would actually say is probably my least favorite Marvel film. You know, I know a lot of people hate on Iron Man 2. Here's my unpopular opinion. I actually kind of like that movie. But here we kind of saw the most development from thor we we really get a sense of who he is now based on the events of thor ragnarok based on the beginning of the film seeing you know loki killed in front of him how is he lo- using his loss of his of his world of his people how is he using these things to fuel him and and what strain does that cause on him you know i think a a good a good point to balance that off of is is the idea of iron man 3 and not and Tony Stark dealing with you know PTSD from the events of the first Avengers film. This is Thor kind of figuring out how am I gonna bounce back from all of this loss that I've just experienced. And I think it it makes for you know a, a greater it makes his character better, you know, because Thor has always just been kind of the silly bro character and he fights because he enjoys it. Yes, there's a little bit of character development here and there. Oh, he learned a lesson, but now we actually see a character truly experienced the worst of all things, you know, having just basically watched his entire family get decimated. And now what does he do? How does he respond to that? And I felt Chris Hemsworth did a really good job of really portraying that. And, you know, I think there were just like a a couple of things that were really great about that, you know, really introducing the movie on him and seeing kind of his defiance of Thanos and, and seeing Heimdall, seeing Loki killed in front of him, having his ship blown apart, having half of the people of Asgard taken out right then and there, you know, it just put him on this arc of for revenge that, you know, made for a really intense climax, um, you know, and, and again, that, that meeting of Thor and Thanos at the end where, you know, Thor having, you know, re, having forged a new axe, the Stormbreaker, plunging it into Thanos' chest and Thanos telling him, you should have aimed for the head. It's just, I don't know, the, the the collision course that those two characters were on throughout the film was really interesting, and I think it was the only one that could have really worked given the cosmic scale of all of this. Uh, and I'll talk about this a little bit later, but you know, again, you have all of these characters that aren't necessarily equipped for these threats. And, and I think back to the original Avengers, I think to Age of Ultron and and the way that Hawkeye actually talks about things. It's like, you know, everything, the, the world's going mad. We're fighting robots and I've got a bow and arrow and it's, you know, I love Cap, you know, he's got super soldier serum, but he's still just a really strong man. Black Widow is a normal person Sure, the Wakandans have this great technology, but again, they're they're regular people. Tony Stark is just a man in a really advanced suit. How are they supposed to go against these entities that can control time, space, reality, all of these things? So Thor, who is who is a god, you know, sure he's an alien in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but he's still a god. He has god-level powers he's the only one who can really stand against this threat and to kind of still see him bested in this way was really, I don't know. It was just like, I think for me, that was kind of the most compelling thing about this film, the trajectory of Thor versus Thanos. And beyond that, just generally seeing it all come together. I mean, again, like the buildup of all these characters throughout these different films and using information throughout their time to really kind of see where they are now so one of the things that stood out to me this time watching it and and kind of reflecting on it knowing that i was going to be recording this is iron man and and the idea that you know they wrote his alcohol addiction out of these films because you know they didn't want a superhero to be seen like that and so rather what they actually did was they had him In a way, addicted to being Iron Man, you know, so Pepper Potts throughout these films has kind of been giving him this ultimatum where, you know, we can't really be together if you can't give up the suit and, you know, time and time again, he can't and just how his actions, how his decisions affect other people, how he pulls in Spider-Man into this thing, you know, because Peter Parker idolizes him and wants to be a hero like him, yet giving him the suit, giving him this power, you know, puts him in harm's way and how, you know, his inability to take responsibility for his own actions, for his own addiction, to wanting to be this hero to feeling like he needs to protect everybody it, it just it all plays out on screen and there's there's even a scene where you know peter blames tony for the the reason you know for being the reason that he's there And Tony doesn't want to take responsibility for that. He doesn't want to put that on himself. But he knows it's his fault. You know, as Peter disappears at the end of the film, you know, with Thanos having completed his goal and snapping his fingers and and wiping out half of the universe, you see him. You see him with the blood on his hands reflecting on the fact that, you know, he did bring this on. And maybe in a weird way, he feels that he brought all of this on because Without him, do any of these villains show up? You know, it gets back to the ideas raised in Civil War. When you're talking about the Sokovia Accords, you know, the idea that Vision poses of the threats that arise in relationship to the heroes coming out. And Tony taking that idea into his head and seeing, if I had never become Iron Man, would all of this still be happening? Would an alien invasion have happened? Would Thanos be here now? I just, there's there's something about that that's just so interesting to me. And I think that's, that's one of the most interesting through lines of the entire MCU up to this point. So these next few are just going to be a, a couple of quick hitters, some things that I that I observed that I that I really liked. Um, I'm not going to say that I love them, but but really liked. Just the idea of, you know, all of the super conceited characters being together. Stark, Strange, and Star Lord, the three of them being in scenes together and kind of unable to work together to a certain extent. It, it's just a lot of fun seeing them together because their egos are are gigantic. they're all massive. They all think they're the smartest person in the room and and seeing them butt heads but then eventually work together but still being uneasy about trusting each other was was really was really a lot of fun and, and really interesting and, and I enjoyed I enjoyed their time together on Titan. The other thing that I really liked, um, the other, you know, batch of three characters that I liked, and and these are three characters that I really wanted to kind of see more of, especially in the kind of climactic battle scenes, uh, Okoye, Black Widow, and Scarlet Witch all fighting together to fight one of the members of the Black Order, and... You know, it, it was funny. in In my second viewing, I was sitting next to a woman who, when all three of them were on the screen fighting together, or well, specifically, it was when Okoye and Black Widow um, started fighting. You know, she just shouts out "girl power" and like starts clapping. and And you know, I thought that was something that was really cool about it. It was definitely two characters that, you know, in each of their respective films that they've been in, have really been been standout characters, and to kind of see them being. Two that were able to work together and then seeing kind of Scarlet Witch come come in and, and Okoye's response like well, why was she up there this entire time it, it, that was just like a lot of fun and, and I feel like they did a really good job um, setting up those characters And likewise seeing uh, Captain America and Black Panther running side by side into the battle um, you know the battle is something I'm going to talk about a little bit later. Uh, but it was just really cool to see those two characters who are, who are definitely two of my favorite characters in in Marvel comics, getting to see them side by side running into battle. And I don't know, there's just something really cool about it. And on top of everything else, like just the heroes losing, I am a big fan of the empire strikes back and, and seeing the heroes kind of have to lick their wounds and, figure out how they're going to pick up the pieces and I think that's that's what's really cool about this film you know we we aren't treated to oh yep we beat the villain it's all over let's move on now it's we have to figure out something because we just saw our friends literally disappear in front of us what do we do how are we how do we move on past how do we move past this what do we do next? And you know, I think it puts everything in a really interesting place um, that I that I can't wait to see how they decide to go on from here. Now, some things that I didn't like so much, and the first one I mentioned it before, it really has to be the writing and storytelling around Gamora and one of my friends, Chris, uh, had messaged me about this and, and, you know, he, he had a couple of very, you know, specific points from the writing that, that he was talking about. And I think we were very much on the same page where it was just like the character felt inconsistent with who we've kind of known in the past in both guardians one and two, you know, In this film, Gamora very much felt like nothing more than a plot device. She became an object, one of, you know, of Star-Lord's desires and of Thanos' mission. You know, she wasn't—she didn't really have agency on her own. She was simply there to drive the story forward, one, in order for the Soul Stone to be achieved— and two, for Thanos to be able to break free and get the time gem. And I i, I don't know. It just it felt really weird to me. Uh, it felt inconsistent with who her character has been. She's always seemed like a character who didn't need to be informed by you know the the male characters around her but in this one you know again it just it felt like she was an object it didn't feel like she was a a person as much and i think that was again that was where some of the thanos and gamora stuff started to fail because it's all right you know when thanos tricks her into thinking that she had killed him with the reality stone she weeps for him you know she's actually sad But in no other scenes do we really kind of get the idea that her relationship with Thanos was that difficult. In every other scene, it's, oh, I hate him. He's the worst. He's going to do terrible things. But you don't really get that sense that she felt anything positive for him. And that's really the only scene where you get that. And then, you know, when he sacrifices her to obtain the Soul Stone, then he's crying and she's just berating him, telling him that he loves nothing. And, you know, but clearly, you know, based on that earlier scene, based on the complexity of the relationship, she would have to know better than that. You know, given that she was always treated better than Nebula, she was probably treated better than any one of Thanos' subordinates. So she would have to know that she was prized in that way. But again, that's the problem. She was nothing more than a prize. And I think that was that was one of the biggest failings with that character because she could have been so much more. She could have been so much more integral to the story as a character and not just as... She essentially was a MacGuffin. You know, she had no more character than, than one of the Stones. Another point that... Uh, another thing that I felt was somewhat underdeveloped and would have... Enjoyed either a little bit more of, or a little bit better rendition of, was probably the Black Order. Uh, With the exception of Ebony Maw, I think Ebony Maw was probably the most interesting one of them. If you don't know he who he is, he is the one who was referred to as uh, Squidward, Um, and you know he fought Iron Man and and Spider Man and um, Doctor Strange early in the film, and. I don't know. I feel like of the Black Order, he was the one who was kind of most well realized. Um, like Corvus Glaive is really cool, but you know he didn't really get to, you know, say much other than like you know grab the stone and I don't know. There was there were there were just issues with them. The CG felt off on most of them. They were a little distracting, and I and I don't really know what they added to the film. And speaking of CG, you know, one of my least favorite things in films was back in this one is just the big CGI armies just smashing into each other. Like, I, I didn't really need that. And, you know, I I thought I was kind of I thought that was kind of lame. And, you know, beyond that, you know, even though I love seeing this all come together, you know, I, I do have to ask, you know, was it too much? Were there too many characters? was there too much going on in the story and, you know, was it too dependent on having all of this previous knowledge, you know obviously this film is set up to be the culmination of 10 years of work, 18 films but should it be able to stand better on its own and that's not to say that you can't watch this film on its own and enjoy it because I, I definitely think you can. But there are things that you won't necessarily understand. There are character motivations that you won't necessarily understand if you haven't seen their other films, and you won't understand the totality of their character growth. Um, one thing you know that that's brought to mind is a is a small Twitter conversation that I had with one of my former students, Zach, where we we really were kind of talking about how. Film and TV are kind of in these really nebulous places now because of, in a sense, the episodic nature of how we're building films, especially um, with the cinematic universe style where, you know, you know, looking at something like Game of Thrones next season, which episodes will be 90 minutes long, which is an hour and a half, which could be that's essentially feature length. You know, how is how is a cinematic universe any different, or how are how are TV shows any different than films? And I just think that's a really interesting thing to think about, and and how do you make those things work? You know, obviously there's a, a really central narrative for something like Game of Thrones, and even though it all focuses on different characters, the story always points back to the center, which isn't necessarily the case for the cinematic universe because all of the characters have their own individual stories that. Inform who their characters are When they do all come together Um So I think that might be something that Is is you know I'm not necessarily going to say that that's a It's a bad thing it's just an interesting thing And I think it's something that's worth thinking about Um and beyond that One other thing that That was sent to me the other day And that I had been thinking about Um so one of my high school friends Terrence he had sent um one of the trailers for the film and, and had mentioned or a, a screenshot from one of the trailers of the film and asked me, you know, if I thought it was misleading. And then basically it's that scene where you have like cap and a and black Panther and Bucky and Falcon and war machine and the Hulk all running towards the screen. But, you know, once you see the film, you know, Hulk's not there. The, the scene is so much different. And you know, it really got me thinking about how a lot of the advertising for this film was purposefully misleading. And, you know, there's, there's a part of me that's like, I don't know if that's good or bad. You know, we often complain about trailers when they show us too much, but when the trailer shows us something that doesn't actually happen and it, and it helps keep us surprised during the film because you're waiting for that moment, you're waiting for that moment. And then that moment never comes. I think that's something that, you know, for me personally, I actually enjoyed about this film. You know, I sit there oftentimes watching a trailer and saying, well, let me figure out what's going to happen. Let me predict what's going to happen. While in large part, I was able to do that here. There were still a lot of things where I was just like, well, that, that didn't happen. Where was that? And so, you know, it, it's one of those things that I I just, I'm going to be thinking about going forward. It's what stuff do they show us? What stuff is real? What stuff isn't and how far do they go to, you know, lead people to believe that it's real. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine and his, his girlfriend the other day and, you know, not naming any names, but she works for a company that does some merchandising for, uh, You know, for Marvel, and they were actually told certain story elements that were going to happen in the film that ended up not happening in the film. And I just, again, like, I think that's really interesting from a product standpoint. So a lot of people were worried about spoilers related to an incredible Hulk action figure where it was the Hulk bursting out of the Hulkbuster armor. And while I think that would have been really cool and I wanted to see that, I was really hoping to see that. Maybe, maybe it was something that was going to be in the film, but at the last minute they decided to, t- to pivot it and take it in another direction. And maybe they felt, oh, it makes more sense if the Hulk is just afraid the entire movie. Or potentially, and and I don't like getting into these theories about what's going to happen in the next film. But maybe this is something where you know we will see that scene. It's just going to be in the future. It's going to be in the second part of you know, the, the infinity saga. And that brings me to another question that, that Zach asked where he, he really wanted me to reflect on kind of how this film felt, you know, did I see this as being a part one, even though they changed the title, they were going to do infinity war part one and infinity war part two, but then they decided to change the names. And, you know, honestly, like I still feel like it, it, it does feel like a part one, and I, and I will probably look at it as part one, but it's also a part 19. You know, there are 18 other films that came before this, as I've said so many times. And, you know, I, I, I really, how do I put this in the words? I see this as something that it's always in continuation. There's you know, none of these things for me stand alone because we always know more is to come. We always know there's gonna be a sequel, we always know there's gonna be an offshoot where maybe they'll appear. It's always it's always introducing something, continuing something, or finishing something. And finishing it only in the purposes to start the next one. And so, you know, it, it's hard to say that it feels solely like a part one when really it feels like a part two, three, 17, 18, 19, depending on where you're coming from the series, you know, where you're coming to the series from. And I, and I wanted to talk about a few things that I wanted a little bit more of. And so, you know, this gets back to kind of like the misleading advertising part, but I definitely wanted more Wakanda and more from the Black Panther characters. I feel like you know besides gamora i feel like these characters were the least written in the entire film and honestly i wonder if part of that was you know marvel's surprise at how successful the black panther was as film and deciding to use use more of that as kind of the backdrop for selling this film you know so the main reason that they even go to Wakanda is to protect vision there and the Black Panther's Challah himself doesn't really have much to do he's just there to fight his people are just there to fight and die and I and I find that you know I I was a little bothered by that like I wanted more for them to do I wanted them to feel more important to the story like even having it be something where you know they're get like like even something where T'Challa is sharing that information with world leaders on, you know, hey, we've discovered this incoming threat and, you know, we need to start doing something in order to protect the population. It just, it just felt like a, a wasted opportunity uh, based off of, you know, again, the success of these characters, but a much, a very useful marketing tactic for Marvel. Um and, and besides besides the Wakandans and, and Black Panther, the other characters that I wanted to see a little bit more from was Captain America and his team. And again, like, I know it's a cosmic threat. They're not necessarily the best equipped for this. But Steve Rogers barely had any lines in this movie. He barely had any, like, memorable action. And I just wanted to see—I I w- always want to see Captain America do cool things, you know. Falcons, whatever, you know, Falcon can do cool things sometimes, you know, he's kind of a, he's kind of a lame jobber character, at least the way they have him in the movies. Um, but you know, I, I wanted to see more from all of them and I just felt like they were, were underutilized. Um, one of the, one of the things that I thought was really cool to see in this movie was actually the Iron Spider costume. So, um, you know, in the comics, it's something that Tony Stark had given Peter Parker when he... Decides to announce that he's Spider Man and reveal his identity during the events of Civil War. Um, and seeing that suit realized, especially with the back uh, spider legs, that was just really cool. I never thought I would see that on the big screen, you know, until they had hinted at it in, in Spider Man Homecoming, but. You know, I wasn't really sure if that was ever going to really be a thing or if it was just kind of a joke to, to get people excited. But, you know, seeing it actually happen in this movie was really cool, and, and I thought it was really well utilized. I also thought it was really cool seeing in the film um, the way that the Infinity Stones were kind of used in conjunction. So one of the things that's interesting, if you pay close attention... The stones glow, uh, specifically when Thanos is kind of using them. And so you can see when he's combining two different stones. So early on, he's using a lot of space and power stone together. Um, later on, he's using like space and reality and power and reality and stuff like that. And so, you know, really being able to see how those stones work is, is really interesting. Um, One thing that one of the questions that Zach had also sent me was asking for an explainer of how the Infinity Stones work. And, you know, I'm I I will probably do a bad job of doing that. So what I what I will do is in the show notes, I will actually include a link to a little diagram that Marvel had created explaining how the stones work in conjunction and, you know, how mastery in certain areas helps you control that specific stone. Uh, it's something that they had released earlier this year. And once you kind of take a look at this, it, it makes a lot more sense as to how Thanos is actually using these stones and, and what they mean for the powers that he can actually use. Thanks for tuning in to the special edition spoiler cast of LM2 Talks. It was great getting just to share some of my more in-depth feelings about the film and to kind of go into some of the stuff that I might have wanted to talk about but didn't actually get to in the spoiler-free, you know, kind of analysis and reflection. Um, Hopefully I said some stuff that was actually of interest to you. Um, As always, you know, feel free to hit me up at LarryTron on pretty much everything and stay tuned for my next episode. Hope to catch you soon. Peace. Fun isn't something one considers when balancing the universe. But this (laughs) does put a smile on my face.